And you should have some notes for our first session today in the new series that I'll introduce in a moment. And as you get settled in and get your notes, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. This afternoon at 2.30 is our next, what we call family meeting. That's a congregational meeting, business meeting. So it's for all of our members. If you're not a member, you can still come and listen. You can't vote on anything. We don't have a lot to cover uh, this afternoon, but we need to look at our financial report from the last quarter, and I'll mention some informational items that are coming up, but not a lot to cover. But that's at 2.30 this, this afternoon. Tonight, then, we do not have our, our home groups uh, meeting. On Wednesdays, every Wednesday, we have our midweek program, and that is classes for all ages. And for the adults, we have a men's class and a women's class this semester. So no matter how many or what ages you have in your family, we have something for you, 7 o'clock each Wednesday. This coming Friday is the men's night out at the range. That's at the Wayne County Sportsman's Club. There's a cost for that if you're interested in it. And that cost can be paid out this back door and across the hall at our resource center. They do need to have an idea about how many guys are coming because they're having food. That's part of your cost, the food. But that's uh, this coming this coming uh, Friday at uh, 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock to uh, 10 o'clock for that. Two weeks later on the 24th, the ladies have the same thing at the uh, same location. So ladies, if you're interested, you can pay and uh, register for that as well. Then on March the 4th, March the 4th is a Saturday at 10 a.m. At our house is our next newcomer's brunch. As the name suggests, that is food, brunch, for those who are new to our church. And consider yourself new if you've never been to one of the brunches. So it sometimes is the case that we've got people who've been here for a good while, but for whatever reason have not been able to make their schedule work with one of the prior newcomer's brunches. So if that's the case for you, then we'd love to have you even if you've been here for a long time. We'd like to have everybody into our house uh, at least once if we can, and the Newcomer's Brunch is a good way for us to do that. But we need to know who is coming, so you need to register, and that's at the information desk. That's out in the lobby. You just tell them that you would like to attend the March 4 uh, Newcomer's Brunch, and they'll uh, put your name down on the list. They'll also give you an invitation that has our address and phone number and a reminder of the date. And then one last one, and that is uh, March the 11th, Saturday, March the 11th, is our next family event that's going to be bowling at Woodhaven Lanes, and that's for the kids and everybody. The cost for that is $7 per person, $28 maximum per family. So if you have more than four in your family, you still won't pay more than the $28, and you can pay for that in the Resource Center also. All right, welcome everyone to the first of eight weeks in our series on anger that's titled How to Be Good and how to be good and angry. And you should have a set of notes in front of you. And each week we're going to give you a a set of notes. And then at the end we'll compile all the notes in one notebook. If you'd like a clean copy, if you you, uh, mark mark these up. If you miss a week and want the notes from a prior week, we will have the prior week's notes in our resource center. So you can just go in there and pick up any of those that you missed. The first page then of the notes that you should have in front of you. We all have firsthand experience with anger that's gone wrong. We've dished it out. We've been on the receiving end. We've heard and seen others get angry at each other. At some point in each day, you're probably affected by some form of anger gone bad, either your own or someone else's. Now, often it's mild. 
Things like frustrations, complaining, irritation, often it's veiled. Judgmental thoughts, passive aggressions. Often it's buried, hidden from conscious awareness, painted over with pleasantries, anesthetized by distractions, busyness, or mind-altering substances. All too often it's intense. There's bitterness, hostility, and violence. It's no surprise then that when the Apostle Paul lists in the Bible typical sins, more than half of the items in his list describe some aspect of conflict. Have you ever considered that? So some of you are familiar in Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. But just prior to that, in verses 19 to 21, it says that the sins, uh, the, the acts of the sin nature are obvious. And then it lists those before it lists the uh, antithesis to that, the fruit of the Spirit. And of that list of the acts of the flesh, acts of the sinful nature, uh, half of those describe some aspect of conflict, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy. And it's not just in that passage. In fact, the sins of conflict play a major part in every representative list of sins. So we have in the middle of page one for you there a number of passages in the Bible that list different kinds of sins. And in every one of those lists, these sins that result in conflict are uh, are prominent. So Romans chapter 1, you've got envy, murder, strife, malice, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolent, disobedient to parents, unloving and unmerciful. 2 Corinthians 12, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, slander, gossip, disorder. Ephesians 4, bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, malice. Colossians 3, anger, rage, malice, slander. And then 2 Timothy 3, abusive, disobedient, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, brutal, not lovers of God. Now, just think about that then. Think about how prominent this issue of attitudes and words and actions that lead to interpersonal problems is if it's listed that many times in the Bible. And consider that those lists are written to Christian people. (laughs) Those lists are written in books of your New Testament that are written to churches. Churches like this one comprised of Christian people, people who know Christ, but people who are still susceptible to that kind of stuff. Those kinds of attitudes, those kinds of words, and even, in some cases, those actions. Not only that, but we say next, in the Ten Commandments, each of the horizontal lists, you know in your Ten Commandments you have a list that relates to God vertically, from us to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. These are all vertical commands relating to God. But then you have the horizontal commands. Six of the commands relate to us and our dealings with each other. And of that, each of the horizontal sins, disrespect, that is failing to honor parents, murder, adultery, theft, false witness, coveting, they all can express some form of interpersonal conflict. So it's a big deal, and it's a big deal in the Bible because it is a part of who we are and how who we are comes out in our relationships with one another. 
And yet, despite that, clearly a problem that must be dealt with, and that's why it is so prominent in Scripture, and yet, anger done right is a great good. Now, for some of you, that just that phrase, anger done right, may throw you. Because you're convinced that anger is always wrong. But that's wrong. It's false to say that anger is always wrong. Uh, We're going to see here in a moment, God gets angry. Jesus got angry. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6, be angry, but sin not in that anger. Be angry and sin not. So it is possible, and not only possible, it's necessary and righteous to be angry at times. So that's why we say there is such a thing as anger done right, and when it's done right, it's a great good, because it says that's wrong. And it acts to protect the innocent and the helpless. It says that's wrong, and it energizes us to address real problems. God, who is good and does good, expresses anger for a good cause. Jesus gets good and angry, but he does so in the service of mercy and of peace. He's willing and able to forgive us our anger that's gone bad. He is willing and able to teach us to do anger right. And that's what we want to see in our course together. So if you skip down to the bottom of that page, this course is not about solving anger problems. The word solve suggests that we can arrive. Give us some answers, change some behaviors, and just like that, no more problems. It suggests, if we think we solve it, that anger is simply a bad habit. But anger is not a problem to solve. Instead, anger is a human capacity. Like sex, like happiness, like sorrow. It's a complex human response to a complex world. And like all human capacities and responses, it sometimes works well, but too often goes bad. So let me talk about that for a minute. This idea that you have and I have, every human being has, the God-given capacity to anger. And the capacity to anger is not wrong. It's the expression of anger, the way we do it, and for what we do it. And you need, we need to learn to think about God's world and how we relate to it that way. That is... That the stuff of the world, including us and how we're made, the matter of the world, the material of the world, what the world is, is good. God made it good. But what makes it go bad is the way we use it. It's the way we use God's good stuff in bad ways. That's what sin does. It uses God's good stuff in bad, inappropriate, and undesigned ways. All God's creation is good. It's not the material. It's not the stuff. It's not even our bodies and our emotions that are the problem, but it's how we use it. Here's an example. Sometimes you hear it misquoted that the Bible says money is the root of all evil. I say that's a misquote. Some of you know why it's a misquote. Because the truth is, money's neutral. Money is just currency. It's not money, and the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says what? Love of. 
It's the love of money. It's now because of that inordinate desire that I have, that you have, because as sinful people, our desires have gone wrong, that God's good things are misused to wrong ends. So it's not money. It's the love of it. It's not our bodies, our physical bodies. We're made by God and our bodies are good. But the bodies are misused, obviously. Our bodies are misused in, uh, in the way we use our tongues, in the way we speak. If you were to look at Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, Romans 3, 11 through 18, you would find there this just, you know, if you're prone to depression or if you're, you're feeling down, don't read it. <laughs> It'll make you feel worse, okay? But it, it really is a catalog of the kinds of sins we do, and it mentions all these parts of the body. It mentions what we do with our throats and our lips and our feet. This is all saying this is misuse of the bodies that we've been given. So we can misuse them in all kinds of ways, with our words, with our actions. We can misuse our bodies sexually, obviously. But that then says to many of us, well, that means sex is wrong. That's what a lot of Christians have grown up with in decades past. Sex is a bad thing. And it's a good gift from God, but it's a good gift from God like so many other things that is distorted and misused because of sin. Our minds. Our minds are a gift from God by which we are able to know God and think about God and his world and ourselves and to correlate truth. This is a marvelous gift that God has given. But the way we think in the recesses of our minds about us and about others and about God can become a grievous evil as well. Our emotions? Our emotions are given to us by God. But they can easily be misplaced and misused. And anger is one such thing. Anger is something that we're going to see God has given us for his good ends. We can be good and angry. But because of, just like all those other things, with money and our bodies and our minds, our emotions are distorted and they are used in untoward ways. So here's the way I put it. Those of you that have taken our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class, this will sound familiar because I pound this. So stay with me for the three minutes that I do it. But if you want to know a panorama of the Bible and how it's laid out in just three words, here it is. The Bible is about three major things. It's about orientation. Orientation, that is, when God made humanity, when he made us, when he made the first man and woman, he gave them an orientation to his world. You guys know what an orientation is? You've gone to work orientation, school orientations. They're telling you about here's the place and here's the stuff and here's how we do things. God gave Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first humans, an orientation to who he is and what he expects from them. So it's about orientation. And God, in the Bible, as it moves forward, and the story of God's interactions with people continually calls us back to what we were originally oriented to be. It's about orientation, but it's about a second thing. And this is where the distortion of all of God's good stuff comes in. It's about orientation, but it's about disorientation. What God made becomes distorted, is misused. What he made is good. How we use it is bad. 
because of sin. And so things become disoriented. And now people who were made to know God and have relationship with him now are confused about God, now don't care about God, now think that God is hiding from them or doing things to them. People are estranged from each other. This starts in the third chapter of the Bible. Not only are they estranged from God and hiding from God, you read there, but they're accusing each other. So now there's a separation between the man and the woman, and that estrangement continues on in human relationships. So disorientation, and we live in a world of disorientation, including and perhaps especially in our relationships. But thankfully, God doesn't leave it there. You know, if that's if it's not about a third thing, we're all in big trouble. You know, orientation, but it's then gone wrong with disorientation. But thankfully, it's about a third thing, reorientation. And that is God is at work reorienting his world, bringing his world back to what it was intended to be. And that's the work that Jesus does in his people. He's redeeming us. He's reorienting us to what we were originally made to be, to reflect the image of God clearly back to him in the way we think and talk and act. That'll be fully consummated when we get to heaven, when we, when we die. In the here and now, he continues to progressively move us in the direction of Christ's likeness. So what's the Bible about? Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And it is in this disorientation that anger, like all these other human capacities, becomes distorted and misused. But it can be and was designed to be used properly. So, second paragraph of page two. This class will not promise a technique, insight, or strategy that's foolproof. It will not offer self-affirming truisms to reframe your self-talk so your moods even out. It will not give you deep breathing and relaxation techniques to help you keep your cool. And it definitely won't encourage you to get in touch with the real you and tell the world how you feel. But this class will provide ways to think through and work through your anger that are wise and true. There are ways of handling anger that produce good. There are ways to become more peaceful in many situations and more cleanly angry in the situations that call for it. There are even ways to fail well. So we learn how to find mercy and pick ourselves up again after blowing it. If you skip that next paragraph, we'll examine incidents that leave a bitter taste and whole lifetimes that go sour with accumulated bitterness. We'll look at volcanic wrath, but also the momentary irritations. We often learn the most from the little things, the everyday disappointments, frustrations, disagreements, and complaints. What we learn transfers to the big things. It's like learning to walk before learning to walk a tightrope. So remember, anger really matters. To mess up when it comes to anger is to mess up your life. To get anger straight is to get your life straight. The eight weeks then are divided into four sections. The first that we're going to do today helps us explore our particular experience of anger. The second that will start next week and for a few weeks is going to answer the question, what is anger? The third is going to tackle how destructive anger is changed into something constructive. And then the final section will deal with the difficult cases. So today, let's look at our own experience at being angry people. Anger is the reaction that incinerates marriages and disintegrates families. It energizes gossip. It guns down classmates. Let me just stop there. I mean, it guns down classmates. I mean, there's a, obviously an extreme case, but we all know 
That happens. And then when that goes into the legal realm, what, uh, how is it often presented? It's often presented as uh, temporary what? But temporary insanity. But what has, what has most often gone on in the case of someone who explodes with anger? In this case, a very extreme way, but even if it doesn't involve that kind of deadly violence, you just explode at someone. That explosion didn't come out of nowhere. Please understand that, friends. Those things never come out of nowhere. There's always a brooding. There's always a thinking about. There's always the slights that have been registered and not dealt with. And those accumulated slights then simply await a volcanic reaction. That's what goes on. So it energizes gossip, but it also energizes action, sometimes fatal action. It divides churches. It turns friendship into enmity and erupts in road rage. It's the stuff of every form of grievance and bitterness. The fact that some of us overreact in less colorful ways does not mean that those who are quiet are not angry. So if you are someone who knows someone who yells and throws stuff and is very demonstrative when they're angry, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm glad I'm here so I know how to help that person. Well, I hope that these eight weeks help you to help somebody else. But please understand this. That just because you don't throw stuff and yell and scream, it is likely the case that your anger is simply expressed in a more subdued way. So we all, as we're going to see, express anger. We all have it. We all have to deal with it. So do not think that we're talking here about only people who are very colorful in the ways they do this. Middle of that paragraph, anger is also the basic DNA of things like complaining and brooding and irritability and bickering. The shoes of problem anger, remember there's anger that's not a problem, that's the right kind, but the shoes of problem anger are like a pair of open-heeled bathroom slippers. One size really does fit all. The crucial issues in anger touch every one of us. We all experience it. If you've always been strong-willed, argumentative, and volatile, then, of course, you've experienced it, and that's obvious. If a lifetime of disappointment and disillusionment has left you embittered, you too experience anger. Even if you're the quieter sort, you also experience anger. In the way you do anger, the way we do anger, some of us explode, some simmer, some seem dormant, but we all experience it. And if we don't, if you're somebody sitting here going, not me, it's because we've anesthetized ourselves or detached ourselves. There are many different personalities and different reactions to people and circumstances, but all have in common the experience of anger. And so you've got types, categories like I have listed there. (laughs) Domestic gunslingers. That would be marriages, homes, where people learn and they participate in very overt kinds of anger. Some of you grew up in homes where yelling was the norm. You were yelling. You just learned to yell. Even if you weren't angry, you yelled. But you were often angry, and your parents were often angry, and your siblings were often angry, and that's the way you you handled things. You, You yelled. I mean, sometimes this goes into very extreme forms. I read about a couple... A pastor who was called to the home of a couple that was shooting at each other. 
He's at the top of the stairs. She's at the bottom. She's got a rifle and he's got a pistol. They're shooting at each other. Now, I'm going to name who that was in our church that did that, but (laughs) nobody. But there are people like that, very obvious. But then there's the volcano. There's the person who it simmers, they don't take care of it, and then it erupts in some way. We're going to see in a little bit when those, inter- when those eruptions occur, they're occurring because of something under underlying. So it's simmering, it's heating, and then it erupts. And then there's the iceberg. This is the person who doesn't get mad, they get, they get even. And they try to mute their, their feelings and stuff those feelings. So if you have, have hate, but it hasn't erupted into the domestic gunslinger, please understand that you still have the same stuff of the person who's shooting that rifle or that gun. That's why Jesus could say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already. Why? Because you have in your heart the stuff of what murder is. And let me take it a step further to make the point. You, by hatred, and I, by hatred, have really committed murder, that, and hear this, that's awaiting the right pro- provocation and the right opportunity. If in that moment of your hatred and my hatred, I had the right provocation and I had the right opportunity, anything could happen, if we're honest. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that he spares us from the provocation in that moment or the opportunity in that moment. But it's not because we wouldn't do it. It's because we know we can't get away with it. We don't have the opportunity. Or because we didn't just get taken quite over the edge in order to for it to happen but the hatred is the stuff of which the murder occurs that's why jesus says that so let's see an everyday life example of how anger takes place anger in the grocery store at the bottom of page three david Pollison tells the story of his experience in the grocery store seeing a young mother interact with her small child One wintry afternoon many years ago, I was in the grocery store picking up a few items for dinner. A young mother came into the store at the same time. She was pushing her cart up the aisle ahead of me and her four-year-old boy tagging along. It was hard to say how old uh, she was. I'd guess 25, but she was hard, but uh, she was hard to, but it was hard to say how old she was. I guess 25, but she could have been in her early 30s. Hard lines were already forming in her face. She had long, uncombed blonde hair and was wearing an army jacket and worn-out sneakers. Her eyes had a slightly haunted look, not quite there, as if inwardly preoccupied with troubles from elsewhere, embittered, restless. It was the kind of face that troubles and concerns you. Her little boy started to fuss as they worked their way down the snack aisle. He wanted a candy bar. She wouldn't buy it for him. He whined, but I want... She cut him off. No! He whined a little more. She lit into him. How many times do I have to tell you? No, no, no. I don't want to hear it out of you. If you know what's good for you. And then her threat trailed off. She stopped her cart. She looked away out through the plate glass of the storefront. I had stopped too, concerned how this drama was going to play out. The boy sulked a moment and then complained some more, tugging at her jacket. When I want candy, she cursed him. 
You blankety blank pest. And I don't know why I bother to take you anywhere. She looked away, glanced back at him with hatred, looked far, far away at nothing in particular. He whined again, but I want candy. She turned and slapped him across the face. He started to cry. She looked away, down past the candy and chips, over the checkout lines, out across the parking lot. I thought perhaps she was trying to keep herself from screaming or from killing him. She suddenly turned at him again and bent halfway down. She was in his face, looming over him, her right index finger at a 45-degree angle, three inches from his nose. If you don't shut up right now, I'm going to walk right out of the store and I'm going to leave you here. Do you hear that? I don't want to hear you and I don't want to see your face. If you say one more word, I swear I'm going to get in the car and I'm never coming back and I don't care if I never see you again. She turned and made as if to walk away. After just a couple brisk steps, she turned halfway back to grab his arm with a jerk and say, just shut up. She pushed her cart up the supermarket aisle. The boy followed along, muttering to himself, looking down at the rubberized steel wheels, shuddering across linoleum. He didn't seem afraid of being abandoned. He lagged a good step behind his mother and a step to the side, dragging just enough to irritate her, but not quite enough to detonate her. They were a couple of really angry people. And it made me angry, he says. I felt angry at the mom. She was abusing her son. It's plain wrong to do what she was doing. I felt angry at the boy. He was tormenting his mom. It's plain wrong to do that. I felt angry at whatever background evils made this woman's life such a dark, hellish nightmare. All the things that are so wrong. Boyfriends who don't care. Parents who messed up their own lives too. Drug dealers. Poverty. And I felt angry at the choices she made in response to her difficult life. The anger I felt seemed clean and constructive compared to the irritations I more often feel. I didn't hate that mother and child. I cared, however powerless I was to intervene. I was angry. I hated what they were doing in such a way that I wanted to help. I wished I could protect them, give them mercy, and help them change. It was one of those two rare moments when anger seemed motivated by love, not self-interest. But the good intention went nowhere. I couldn't think of how to make a connection. Now, he says that there are three angers in that uh, supermarket story, bottom of page four. Three of them. There's the mother, there's the boy, and then there's his anger. But they aren't like anything in a self-help book. We're going to look at each of the three, mother, boy, and Paulison in a moment. But half of those self-help books teach techniques for maintaining a degree of detachment so you can keep your cool amidst the irritants of life. The other half urges you to stand up for yourself, own your anger in order to feel empowered. Both kinds of advice seem plausible, sort of, sometimes, when the problem you're dealing with is a minor irritant or if things you're angry about can really be fixed. So, sure, if you take a deep breath and visualize the beach when you're stuck in traffic, the world seems like a nicer place. Sure, when you verbalize your expectations in a non-demanding way, it's more likely people will give you what you want. Sure, acknowledge what you're feeling. But this scene in the supermarket is not about irritants or managing reality to get more of what you want and feel better. It's about evils. It's about things that are wrong and destructive. They need to be made right. What it takes to make it right is not obvious, but the right kind of anger is part of the solution. And so platitudes and affirming self-talk and mindfulness and self-assertion and medication can never do what actually needs doing. None of these angers is explained or resolved by the self-help industry. But they are what life is about. So what are these three angers now in that 
in that scenario in the grocery store? What's happening with that boy? What's happening with that mom? What's happening with the onlooker who wants to help? The boy's anger is what we're most familiar with. He's saying, I want my way. When I don't get it, I make a fuss. I feel sorry for myself. It's so unfair that I don't get what I want when I want it. I'll manipulate you to get my way and bully if necessary. I'll punish anyone who crosses my will. Parents, I don't want testimonies, but you can all relate to that. So just please understand, I would say parents, it's not a parenting course, but just please understand when you see that, that's what's happening in the heart of your child. It's not they're just cute. It's not just that all kids do that, although all kids do that. (laughs) But why do all kids do that? Because some people's kids. (laughs) And whose kids are they? Adam and Eve's ultimately. That's why they do that. So don't dismiss it by saying it's natural because here's the problem. Sin is natural. So saying it's natural ain't going to help. There's something that will grow in the child, if not dealt with, with the gospel, as we'll see. This sort of anger springs up when you want something and don't get it. Anger whines and sulks. It persists, makes a scene. It's savvy and strategic. So we're all familiar with the boy's kind of anger. We've been there. We've done a bit of that. And at the time, we feel justified. An identifiable desire that we have gets frustrated. Anger powers up then from within to attack whatever impedes it. It's a way to get our way or to punish those who cross you or or to register your complaint. That little boy had a very grown-up problem. For one thing, he could never love his mom as long as he was using his mom. You see, he's learning that mom is for me to get stuff. He can't love her as long as he's only using her. And for another, he's becoming like her. Then there's the mom. Hers was like in kind to the boys, but not so simple. Her anger includes, but it's not limited to, I want my kid to be quiet and not embarrass me. He's bugging me, so I'm angry. And her anger, though, has ripened through the years into a more complex situation, a more complex evil. It has a more, more history entangled into it. It incorporates more strands of current events. It wraps the despair of a bleak future into its aggression. It came as a torrent of mixed feelings, of blind motives, of bad experiences. It was raw hostility, and it was also despair and fear and habit and regret and hurt and disappointment and the consequences of bad choices, lack of good role models, accumulated provocations, tight finances, mutually destructive relationships, lies that she's believed, lousy life options, accumulated resentments, futile goals, and perhaps a hangover. Her anger is half right. Many of the things that happened to her are wrong, and her anger has gone all wrong. What was seen in that woman in the grocery store is a distillation of life, quote, having no hope and without God in the world, as Ephesians 2 puts it. Her anger at her son was cosmic in scope and scale. Right now, this kid represents all the bad choices I ever made and all the bad things I ever suffered and all the life I'm never going to have. It's not just that he wants a candy bar. It's that he exists, that I exist. I'm angry at everything. Many desires, many falsehoods, and many fears drive complicated self-destruction. And she can never deal constructively with her kid being a brat when she half resents his very existence and has no hope for her own. Yikes. Now, I want to introduce to you a term that I use about this kind of thing. 
where you're angry at somebody in disproportionate ways. I mean, the kid's asking for a candy bar. That needs to be, and he's, and he's being disobedient, and he keeps pestering her, so he is being a pest, and he needs to learn not to be a pest. And so she needs to deal with that. But she explodes at him. And why is she exploding at him? Because she's got all this baggage that she's bringing to that confrontation. So here's the term. I call it transfer anger. You're transferring your anger about other stuff and other people onto somebody else. And when we live in the four walls together, guess who's the easy target for that? It's the people that are most readily at hand. I'll talk a little more about that in a minute. So the bottom of page five, the story is also about the impulse toward a qualitatively different kind of anger, something good. The anger that I, David Paulison, felt in the supermarket that day seemed right. I ought to feel that way more often. It was inextricably mingled with love. It was the kind of anger that cared. It intended to do something constructive, however small, amid the firestorm of evils. I hated what both the mom and the boy did to each other, but it was a loving hate. It seemed just. That's wrong and unfair, and it should stop. It seemed merciful. If only we could bind up what's so broken. It animated some sort of redemptive impulse. How can what is now so wrong be made right again? So you've got these three kinds of anger going on. You can see that they're complex, especially as they go on for a number of years, like with the mother. And this affects people like you and me. It's not just, you know, that mom. As I'm reading that, you moms are going, I'm glad I came to church today because I feel better about myself because I'm not that mom. I would never do that. Okay, I believe you. But remember what I said about the provocation and the opportunity. So you've never done that. But you can get yourself... Any of us has the stuff, the sinful stuff that's capable of finding ourselves in a situation where we would do things we never thought we would do. So it's about people like you and me, top of page six. Yes, anger stands out when it wears its colorful and dramatic costumes of violence, someone who's relentlessly embittered, ice cold, or flailing in misery and confusion. But the difference in the dangers described above in that supermarket and the anger that you and I experience is a difference of degree and not of kind. We're more alike than different. The person who gets irritated when someone is guilty of disturbing their peace of comfort and convenience or gets irritated at incompetent customer service reps or irritated when someone doesn't take time to understand them accurately, caricatures what they believe and do, and disses them on the basis of what they've imagined. That's not so different from the more obvious displays of anger. All right. So let's talk about transfer anger a little more. You see, in that paragraph, we've got now the stuff that's more likely to happen to most of us. Some of us may fit into the more obvious, colorful ways. So it's good that you're here. Most of us, our anger is expressed in ways like that incompetent customer service rep. The waiter in the restaurant who fancies herself as being able to remember so she doesn't write anything down and gets it wrong. 
Now, if you're a waitress or a waiter here and you don't write it down, maybe you always get it right. But something wells up in me. That something is called sinful anger. When we're ordering and I'm hangry (laughs) already and we're given our order for the four of us and you ain't writing nothing down. I mean, I'm impressed if you get it all right, but I'm going to be ticked if you get it wrong. And then when I'm on the phone with some customer service headphone jockey and I'm complaining about whatever it is, you know, you guys got this wrong on my statement or, you know, my Blue Cross bill is wrong or you guys didn't pay this or, you know, whatever it is. And then you're trying to explain to me defending the indefensible. You're trying to tell me why it makes sense when it make, there's no way on God's green earth that it makes sense. So I'm angry. And it comes out in the way I deal with this person on the phone. And I've thought about that over the years. Me. Doing a series on being good and angry. And yet, in those moments, I'm angry. And I express my anger in the way I deal with the person. I've never threatened to kill anybody. I've never screamed. But they know I'm not happy. And I'm not happy. And my family knows I'm not happy. So I've thought about what's going on there. Now, the headline is this. Newsflash. Pastor Brown is a big, fat sinner. That's the newsflash. But but exactly how is that manifesting itself? And as I've thought about that, I think there's transfer anger going on here. Um, there's transfer anger because at a deeper level, I don't like the way people are being trained in our day and age. You see, I'm going to be 55 next month. And back in the day, people learned stuff. People knew how to do stuff. People knew how to talk. People knew how to speak in complete sentences. And the older I get, the more fond I am of those days. And when I hear somebody incapable of doing that, then I'm angry. But who am I angry at? Not that poor soul, actually. It's they happen to be the convenient target. I'm actually angry at something larger that I'm carrying around with me that comes out when it's vestiges, when it's displayed, when it's expressed on a phone call or in a restaurant. That's transfer anger. It's not really about that poor kid. The truth is, I feel sorry for the poor kid. I feel sorry for the poor kid that I'm mad at. But it's not that I'm really mad at them. I'm mad at something else. I'm mad at something larger. Now think about that then. If that's what goes on in your home, you're mad about something else. You're mad about your career. You're mad about your situation in life. You're mad about your boss. You're mad about your health. 
You're mad about the fact that try though you do, like I have done year after year, I'm in it right now, this is my annual lose some weight at the beginning of the year, spend 10 months gaining it back and more. You've done that? You know, why is that always the deal with me? I am am thick and tired of it, as they say. (laughs) You just got a whole cauldron of things that you're upset about. Now here's what I want you to here's what I want you to get though friends. When it comes out in unrighteous ways even if the occasion is righteous. Because see the problem is when you and I have that cauldron going on and we got those undealt with things going on, now there're going to be times when yes I should be angry, but now because of that I'm going to be angry in the wrong way. So when it comes out in the wrong way and certainly if it's the wrong way and at the wrong things There is a problem. There's a problem for you when that happens. There's a problem for me when that happens. There's a problem for me when that happens in the restaurant, when that happens on the phone. And every time it happens with you, there's a problem that we need to deal with in this course. So, back to page six. Please understand that these are things that are true of all of us. We all get angry. Sometimes it's justified. Sometimes not justified or necessary. Even when we should be, we express it in the wrong way. Our anger lasts longer than it should. It accumulates over time. Now, here's one that you might not think about much. There are times when you should be angry, but you aren't. You see, when unrighteousness happens, when God's truth is being distorted, when the false teachers are on TV, you guys notice I get a little animated? (laughs) I talk about those guys because that's something to be angry about. When God's truth is distorted, there are things to be angry about. And sometimes we aren't angry about the things we should be, and we're often angry about the things that we don't need to be. And then, of course, it's true for all of us, we have a hard time changing. And all of these are things we're going to deal with in the next seven weeks together. So how does that shoe fit? How do you feel about being told that we all have a serious problem with anger? How do you feel about that? Please hear this, that many people think that it's in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. And what I'm going to say to you here in this next sentence is not in the Bible in these words, but this is certainly what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not say God helps those who help themselves, but it does say that God helps those who recognize they need help. The first step in getting God's help is recognize you need it. So I hope that you take to heart, as I'm seeking to take to heart, the idea that I, all of us, have this anger issue lurking within us. Now, look at pages 7 and 8, and we'll be done because it's 12.02. But perhaps one of these six reactions describes you, and I'm going to let you read these, and I encourage you to read these on your own. The person who says, yep, I've got a problem, maybe I do, no, I don't. Sometimes all of that. And with each one of them, with each reaction, there's a strand of truth to it. I want you to see what the strand of truth is, but I also want you to look at the blind spot. If you say one or more of these, every one of them has some truth to it, but every one of them has some falsehood to it as well, a blind spot. And then we'll pick up starting next week with looking at what anger is for the next few sessions together. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for this opportunity to begin to deal with this extremely important issue. We know it's important because you talk about it so much in your word and because it rears its head so often in our interactions. And it does so for each of us, for for me and for every person in this room. And so, Lord, help me and help us to take it seriously and help us to have open hearts to be willing to change. This is not a natural thing for us to change. It's natural for us to distort this good thing that you've given into something unrighteous. But it's not natural for us to change. But Lord, you do what is not just natural, you do what is supernatural. You can do this. You've written about it in your word and you've given us the antidote to it. And so help us over these weeks together to see that, to apply that, and thus be able to better glorify you in the way we express the capacity to anger that you've given. Go with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.